Hey there, I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor for Bloomberg Government. And I'm Greg Giroux, senior elections reporter for Bloomberg Government. Check out our podcast, Down Ballot Counts. Each week, Greg and I will be breaking down all of those down ballot elections that make up the fight for the U.S. Congress. Listen and subscribe to Down Ballot Counts from Bloomberg Government wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. For our latest summer reading list episode, we're going to dive into the contentious Supreme Court confirmation process. We'll be joined by the Cato Institute's Ilya Shapiro, who has a new book out on the subject. But first, let's catch up on some SCOTUS news. Jordan, did you hear that President Trump expanded his shortlist of potential nominees? I did. You know, at this point, it's not really too short. It's like 40 people at least. Uh, But he did announce 20 more on Wednesday, including some big-name senators in Republican circles. Here's the president making the announcement. Paul Clement of Virginia, former Solicitor General of the United States, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. So, Kimberly, anyone on that list stand out to you? So I think what stood out to me most about the list were um, some of the people who were not on the list. So we saw in particular uh, Naomi Rao and um, Justin Walker, who were recently appointed to the circuit courts. And that was kind of seen as a as a little tryout for the Supreme Court. I was surprised to not see them on the list. Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri. Other than that, I would James say, Hall as you mentioned, the you know big name senators um, on the list were kind of a surprise, and indeed, uh, we saw that one of those, um, Hawley out of Missouri, has already declined the invitation to be on the Supreme Court. So yeah, that's too bad. I was kind of looking forward to seeing Hawley serve alongside his former boss Roberts right after Hawley announced after the Bostock decision that Roberts and Gorsuch were in the majority for, that it signaled the end of the conservative (laughs) legal movement. So maybe he was just trying to get around an awkward reunion. Martha Packold of Illinois. It is interesting. A lot of um, Supreme Court clerks on the list, right? That's true. Peter Phipps of Pennsylvania, judge on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. I think I'm going to be on there pretty soon if we keep putting out lists. There's probably another list coming soon, so you have my vote. The district court for the Eastern District of Missouri. Well, uh, speaking of Supreme Court appointments, let's bring on our guest. Ilya Shapiro is the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. He publishes the Cato Supreme Court Review, and as we'll discuss today, he's the author of a new book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. Ilya, thanks for joining us. Good to be on. So it seems like the battle over the judiciary has intensified somewhat in the last several years, but to where do you trace the roots of this supreme disorder, as you call it, that we're living in today? Well, I think it's been intensifying uh, at a pretty gradual clip with perhaps occasional uh, inflection points over many decades, uh, actually. Um, and it, I, I put it, you know, it didn't start with uh, Brett Kavanaugh or, or Merrick Garland or um, even Clarence Thomas or even Robert Bork. Uh, I'd say that the reason why we have these fraught battles is because we're at the culmination of several trends where different interpretive theories map onto partisan preferences at a time when the parties are more ideologically sorted than they've been since at least the Civil War. And so the root of that divergence in the beginning of the party sorting 
probably goes back to the New Deal. So I'd say the court itself, uh, with certain decisions in the 30s and 40s uh, that began kind of realigning into what eventually became the modern uh, uh, progressive and, and conservative legal movements, uh, that's really where, uh, where things started. So getting into some of these, uh, you know, more contentious hearings that you discuss in the book, um, obviously, at least some people trace some of the modern issues back to Robert Bork. Um, obviously, certainly on the, the left, Merrick Garland has become a rallying point in recent years. Uh, you know, one difference between the treatment of Bork and Garland is that uh, Bork got a hearing and was rejected after senators heard from him. Um, in reading the book, I get the impression, and correct me if this is wrong, Ilya, that you think that uh, Bork's treatment was worse than Garland's. Uh, but if that, and if that's so, you know, why do you think that that is? Well, another difference between them is that Bork was attacked personally and, and Garland was not. Uh, that was a position that the Republicans took under Mitch McConnell, simply not to take up any nominee. It wasn't about Garland per se, either personally or his political philosophy or anything like that. Uh, Bork was attacked uh, for a whole host of things, his writings, uh, his personal uh, positions on things. Uh, people were rifling through his uh, video rentals to see if there was anything nefarious to be found uh, there. I mean, he made some unforced errors as well in terms of how he uh, uh, performed at the, at the confirmation hearings. He kind of violated the, what, what's become the modern rule of talking a lot without saying anything. He was very forthright and, and professorial uh, and so forth. Um, as for Garland, uh, I mean, look, there, it turns out, and as I, I learned as I was doing research for this book, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, there have been countless occasions where uh, nominees have not been acted upon or, uh, I love this euphemism, uh, postponed indefinitely, uh, let alone rejected. Uh, only 126 of 163 nominees have been uh, confirmed. About half the presidents have had a rejection, uh, including George Washington. So this goes back right to the very beginning. And it might not surprise you to learn that uh, politics has always been a part of the process, though, of course, the way that the politics intrudes and the issues change over time. Ilya, you note that there's nothing in the Constitution saying that um, a nominee has to get a hearing. Um, there's also nothing in the Constitution that says that the president can't nominate someone in their last term in office. So I'm just wondering what the line is. Is it anything goes that's not specifically barred by the Constitution? Purely political. Uh, certainly a president can, can nominate, and some would argue has a duty to nominate uh, under, under the Constitution. Uh, and indeed, we've had confirmations, even in lame duck sessions after the presidential election, even by the loser of that presidential election, has made nominations that have ended up uh, confirmed. The, the biggest determinant, really, is whether there's unified government or not, whether the same party controls the White House and the Senate. When they do, Historically, 90% of the nominations have been confirmed. Uh, when they don't, it goes down to about 60%, and that's even lower when uh, it's in the, uh, in the final year of a presidential term. And so uh, in the book, in talking about just kind of the current state of affairs of where we're at, Ilya, you write that the result of the 2016 presidential election is that for the first time in the modern era, and perhaps more clearly than ever, different judicial methodologies and approaches to legal interpretations line up with partisan preferences. My question is, is that necessarily a bad thing? Are we not just at a point where the, the process has become, you know, efficient as opposed to being politicized? Is this just kind of the end result of where things were going all along? Or do you think that that's a bad thing? 
Well, I, I, I write that it's perfectly appropriate to take judicial philosophy into account, interpretive method, and evaluate nominees uh, on that ground. Um, whether it's good that that aligns with partisan preference, I don't know. It's, it's not good in the sense that people now talk about Republican judges and Democratic judges or Obama judges and Trump judges. That's, uh, that's unhealthy because it, it, it makes the court look, or courts in general, look like a like political actors, uh, just like the political branches, where, you know, I'm not questioning uh, the bad faith uh, uh, of, of people, of, of judges with whom I disagree. Uh, I don't think that they're doing it for base political motives. I, you know, I, I, I would rather debate uh, those kind of philosophical questions. And indeed, senators have every right to make their decisions on whether to support or oppose nominations on those grounds. But they should be honest about that rather than trying to to demagogue in, in all sorts of uh, other ways. But as I said, I mean, a, a lot of this comes down to politics, and that's changed historically. Uh, now it's purely about ideology and, and, and uh, differing methods of judicial interpretation. So speaking of um, Trump judges, um, um, well, I know there aren't any, but um, you write that by filibustering Gorsuch, Democrats destroyed their leverage over consequential vacancies and that moderate Republicans uh, wouldn't have used the nuclear option to seat Kavanaugh in place of Anthony Kennedy. Wondering what your um, basis for that assumption is that the Senate, you know, refused to hold a hearing for a nominee and it wouldn't have done the same thing for the next nominee. I mean, the, the way that things were developing, Kavanaugh became so controversial that it's, it's, it would have been a harder lift. I mean, it was very easy to get mm-hmm. um, the, the senators in line to remove the filibuster for uh, Gorsuch replacing Scalia. Um, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer was put in a hard place by his base, who, after the Garland fight, after the 2016 election, uh, wanted, uh, wanted blood. Uh, but strategically, I think that was an error for the Democrats. They really should have uh, preserved the ability to filibuster because that would have been one more obstacle, uh, a very high one, um, that uh, I think would have been uh, insurmountable given uh, the shift in the court. That's one of the things that obviously we see that historically the biggest fights have been when there's a possibility for uh, a, a shift in the court based on the replacement of that justice. And so as we're heading into the 2020 election, uh, depending on who wins the election and who stays on the court and when, there's a possibility of another shift. And just to show how quickly these things can change, uh, you know, Ilya, we set up this interview before President Trump announced his latest additions to the shortlist, or maybe as now we'll just call it the list with some 40 or so people on it. And, And just to show how much this has changed in the book, you noted that Paul Clement, the former Solicitor General, hadn't been on Trump's shortlist because he's an example of someone who, although he's a conservative and one of the great Supreme Court lawyers of our time, he doesn't have a judicial paper trail. But now he was on the, the latest additions to President Trump's list. Wondering just in general what you make of President Trump's latest additions to this list and you know what kind of difference it'll make, if at all, to our uh, latest disorder that we're in? Well, I don't think uh, the list in 2020 was as necessary as it was in 2016, because four years ago, uh, conservatives, legal elites uh, really weren't sure what kind of judges President Trump uh, would appoint. Uh, And uh, it was all crystallized because there was that vacancy that Scalia had died. And so uh, to shore up that support, to prevent uh, Republican defections or from staying home on Election Day, he put out that list, and it was uh, 
uh, an unconventional move, certainly defied uh, the, the conventional ad advice to political candidates not to put targets on potential nominees, whether for cabinet or judges or, or anything else. I, I think it was the, really the first time in history something like that had been done, and it was uh, hugely successful for Trump. Now he has a track record. He's appointed judges, which conservatives are over the moon about. He's uh, basically kept his base. Uh, he didn't need to add more people. As, as you said, there was already 24 ready to go. You know, now there's 44. If you take, take away those who are over 55, who almost certainly won't be nominated, there's still like 34. Not a very short list. So now it serves a different political purpose, which is why someone like a Paul Clement or others in the administration, past or present, uh, who don't have that kind of uh, paper trail um, uh, were put on there. It's a very, you know, it's a clever list politically because it shows great uh, diversity ideologically, geographically, uh, places where people went to law school, demographically in terms of women and racial minorities. Uh, it means something for, for everyone, really, uh, and so it serves that purpose, but also puts pressure on Joe Biden uh, to come up with a list, to talk more about judges, uh, and Biden and Democrats historically uh, have not really uh, wanted to talk about judges as much. Hillary Clinton certainly didn't, despite the brouhaha over uh, Merrick Garland, um, with the exception of Bill Clinton in 1992. Uh, that was really the, the, the exception that, that, that proves the rule. And so the list now is serving a different purpose. You know, I, I can, you know, I like some more than others. I think there were some key omissions like Andy Oldham of the Fifth Circuit or Naomi Rao of the D.C. Circuit. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, really it's trying to figure out who are the serious contenders. Uh, and from this list, I, I guess someone like Jim Ho is probably going to be a serious contender. Maybe Noel Francisco, the, the former Solicitor General, uh, like Kagan, uh, has not been a judge. But you probably need to put him up there for defending the, the administration's position so strongly. A couple of the other of the judges, but really there's, you know, a, a great cohort that was still uh, on the list previously uh, and, it, and it all depends on when the vacancy occurs, which vacancy it is, because if it's to replace Justice Ginsburg, it almost certainly will be a woman. Um, and indeed, whether President Trump gets reelected, uh, because there's not a vacancy now. And if he doesn't get reelected, we go a couple of months, uh, he's not going to have that opportunity. So speaking of um, the upcoming election, there are lots of calls for um, on the left for reforms of the court. And that's very much at issue in this election. How do you think that those kinds of issues like term limits or expanding the number of justices are going to um, come into play in any upcoming uh, confirmation battles. Court packing was a lot hotter of an issue a year ago during the Democratic primaries. It seemed everyone was for that or some other kind of structural change. Uh, this might be one of the few issues, maybe the only issue on which I agree with Bernie Sanders, who said court packing, no, that's crazy, because then the next time the others are in power, they'll, they'll put on more, and in 50 years we'll have 87 justices. I'm not going to do the accent, but that was the point, and I think, <laughs> I think Bernie's right uh, on, on that. As for the, the other structural reforms, Term limits are interesting, 18-year uh, terms, so you have a vacancy every two years. Every presidential term would get uh, two uh, and no more, no less than, than two nominees. But at the end of the day, all of these structural reforms, some of which have more merit, some of which have no merit, uh, are rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And the Titanic is not the confirmation process. It's the product. It's the ship of state. Uh, because the problem is the court has become so powerful, courts in general, federal courts have become so powerful, deciding so many uh, controversies that have been centralized uh, in Washington and then skewed towards uh, the executive branch, the administrative agencies in a large pluralistic society that you can't avoid 
these fights over these precious seats. So the only long-term solution is to rebalance our constitutional order, make those rulings less important, enforce federalism, so more of those decisions are taken at the state and local level, uh, and rebalance within the federal government. So Congress is debating uh, those issues and making, resolving those culture and political policy uh, clashes rather than forcing everything into the courts. And do you see any likelihood of that ever actually happening, Ilya? Well, it took us decades to get to where we are. It would, it would be a decades-long process to, uh, to right the ship, uh, as it were, to continue the nautical metaphor. So uh, I don't have <laughs> any easy solutions, no panaceas. Um, I mean, we're, we're just going to muddle along politically for a while, and it's, uh, it's a little depressing. Uh, but uh, I think the fight needs to be had over differences in interpretive method, judicial philosophy, that sort of thing. <laughs> Thank you for continuing to play the music as the ship goes down and for joining us on Cases and Controversies. We really appreciate it. Sure. Yep. Take care. Bye. You know, there's one fun part of uh, Ilya's book that I didn't get to ask him about where he said that uh, Robert Bork's beard would have had its uh, own Twitter account if the <laughs> hearings were uh, going to happen uh, these days. So this book did have some uh, nice tidbits in there like that. So you should all go and check it out. Honestly, I don't know why we can't have that today. It seems like something that we should have on Twitter. Let's do it. I'm on it. I mean, yeah. Okay. All right. So we'll be back, everyone, in two weeks with our preview episode. Are you ready for the court to come back? Come back. So you didn't even leave. When are we doing? When's the summer going to start? Exactly. Well, uh, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. And don't forget to follow uh, Robert Bork's beard on our Twitter account. Office-based startup WeWork has officially postponed a plan to go public. WeWork is having trouble finding investor demand at one-third of the $47 billion price tag. The real concern is Adam Newman, the CEO. Everything is on him. His performance will determine this. What went wrong? We'll take you inside the company with interviews from people who helped build WeWork and exclusive tapes of internal meetings where Adam talks to his employees in ways he'd never speak in public. None of us want to look back and say, I could have done more. This could have been bigger. This could have been better. That's not acceptable. You do not get a chance like this again. None of us do. This is a new podcast from Bloomberg Technology called Foundering. Check us out. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.